Hey everybody, welcome to Shallow Dives. We're on episode four of Quarantine Cast. Got a brand new list of six films each for you. Um, and we're kicking it off with two each. Well, kind of two each. Torres, I got some beef with you already out of the gate, but we'll get to that. We'll get to why I'm angry with Torres. Um, so I think the last episode, I, I like just switching it up, you know, order wise. I think last episode you went first, so I'll go first on this one. Okay. Uh, if that's okay with you. Yeah, so my first... My first selection uh, is a 1995 Todd Haynes film called Safe. Uh, one of the first, if not the first, starring vehicle for Julianne Moore. She'd been in a couple bit roles, but this is the first thing where she really got to kind of break out. Um, so Safe, some people call it the best film of the 90s. Some people hate it. Uh, how did you feel about Safe? Um, it's a movie I had never seen, uh, and I really like Todd Haynes. We had sp- uh, spoken to that previously on another podcast, and it was weird because... I've been saying to you, the more uh, the older I get, the more I'm like, you know, the 80s, I talked a lot of shit about that, uh, but it's gotten a lot better in retrospect in terms of like films that came out during the 80s. And even, you know, like we all look at the hair bands and we think that that's what the 80s was. And it's like, that's not really. Um, and then I've been I've been souring on the 90s a bit to be completely honest. And then mm-hmm. I saw this movie and I was like, you know, I just feel like I'm uneducated because if this existed without me seeing it for so long, uh, right. you know, like there's gotta be a bunch out here. This movie was captivating number one, uh, but immediately has a texture mm-hmm. and like a presence. Like, you know, it takes place in the suburbs of Los Angeles. It's not, you know what I'm saying? It's not like a, uh, like a small well, part of it. It's not necessarily like this huge visually arresting thing. And yet every scene, right. He finds a way to make suburbia and perfect, uh, perfectly lined architecture look menacing and stuff. Um, yeah. And really kind of be a reflection of this, of this character. Do you want to set up the film a little bit before we kind of get into it? Yeah. So uh, Julianne Moore plays Carol White, who is this, uh, she self-described homemaker and she spends her time going to aerobics classes with her friends and gardening and just kind of chilling at home. And she's, it's almost established in the first couple of minutes in what looks like a passionless marriage with uh, her husband, Greg. Um, And she's a woman who like we kind of figure out early on, doesn't really have a whole lot of agency, like a very passive protagonist who starts to exhibit these very severe allergies to what looks like her environment and that illness kind of gets worse and worse and worse uh as the film goes on um unlike most movies uh that would deal with this premise by like having the first two thirds oh what is the illness like it's a mystery the last third would probably answer that and show her rallying and uh on the road to recovery and it would be a a story of somebody rising up but that is not what happens in this movie at all yeah, um, it's, which is what makes it such a terrifying uh, kind of watch for me, anyway. Right off the bat, uh, historically, the, I read this is Julianne Moore's first starring role, uh, an amazing debut. Like it wasn't her first thing ever, I don't believe, but it was her first. Like, hey, we're gonna make a movie with her, uh, and I think that's that's great. I think she's long been one of the most underrated kind of actresses out there. But what's interesting is like my relationship kind of starts with her like i've gone back but i think the first time i saw her was hannibal was the silence of the lamb sequel like Mm. for some reason i hadn't seen anything that she had done up until that point so i'm like oh she was already like in her 30s like maybe like late 30s by that point you know what i'm saying so it's like i've never really seen her as like a young woman if that makes sense so it was very interesting to be like whoa okay this is a version this is a shade a dimension of this character that i hadn't seen before but also like having this otherworldly wise beyond her years or depressed beyond her years uh, outlook of life and it starts Mm -hmm. very uh soon i mean you were talking about 
a seemingly loveless marriage or whatever. And it starts off with this thing that I've always said. We've talked about this with other films that we have watched where like uh, when there's like sexual assault scenes, they get really, really intense sometimes. Uh, and it's like the thing that always freaks me out the most is just when like they have like just a close in on like a woman's face as she is just trying to get to some other place. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and that's horrific. It's still equally, not equally horrific in, in intention, but in terms of execution, like they have this like sex scene in the very beginning that is like so unsexy, no score, right. no, no romance or lust, just the back of this dude's fucking hurts. head and her face yeah and it, it just looks like something that's being done to to her like yeah. it's, she doesn't seem like an active participant in any way um and just noiselessly wordlessly just going through this just to get through it but that's uh, a great like, descriptor of her in the whole film for the most part like yeah. doing these perfunctory society things right she's a homemaker she doesn't have a job she gets to spend her days doing like bitch and aerobics <laughs> which were cool right. Uh, and hanging out with like socialites and stuff like that. And yet she always seems more like a presence than an actual participant. Right. Um, like somebody described it as the way Todd Haynes films his scenes. Cause you talked about the spaces having a, a menace to them. And mm-hmm. like the soundtrack does kind of have this constant hum of like electricity and air conditioning. Like that's always layered in, which adds to that. But somebody described it as the way he frames her is almost like she's another piece of furniture in a room. And she rarely moves. And that, that is sort of like an interesting and kind of perfect way to describe it. Um, and like how much negative space is always around her in the frame. There's very rarely a close-up until like the very end, which is one of the most like unsettling endings I've seen in a yeah. movie. Like just in such a, like we can get to that later. But, but yeah, like just to speak to your point, like just the use of color, the use of sound, the use of framing, like definitely kind of makes her more of an object than a human being. It's also very interesting. Yeah. It's also very interesting that like very colorful palette, but yeah, like pastels and all that. Yeah. That's what's interesting about it. It's a dreary film that looks like it exists in the gray scale. Right. But it's littered with color. Uh, There's just a scene where she's talking in the living room. She's just sitting at a table. It's very early on, maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes in or something. But then there are like all these colored pots on the side and it just lingers on one shot. And you can see this window and all this empty negative space. I'm just like, Jesus, it's like an Mm -hmm. astonishing shot. And he lingers on it too. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just from a visual perspective, I, I didn't realize it was going to be as visceral as it was or like as methodical as it was so, to speak to the sound design, which is the unsung hero here, um, mm. as it is in most movies, to be honest. Mm. Uh, there, there's some shit here where it's interesting because it feels very much like an original vision and yet just because we live in a world where we see art and we have to compare it to other art there's the scene uh, the baby shower scene where she just has this like silent freak out in a room until it gets louder and louder and i'm just like yo this is some lynch shit it felt right. very twin peaks ish and and yet it wasn't derivative it just felt like that there was this consensus uh, consen- feeling yeah. yeah consensus of 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 uh, bunch of artists coming to the same space visually and in a sound sonic fear uh, sonic sphere uh all at the same time so i was I, I don't know man like this movie really got me in a way i just wasn't expecting and then you're right the you know to speak to just to kind of uh, go go forward in the story it's like the doctors are at a loss there's no uh, clarity for her the, right. the community that she was perfunctory, uh, per, like a perfunctory uh, aspect of is now kind of grown indifferent, if not like outwardly toxic. Uh, and so like she finds herself unable to kind of cope with life. It really is this right. rejection of everything of, of 
of a piece of paper that says you're married to someone, uh, your possessions, your former life, all that shit. And then the third act is interesting because you're right. Every other movie, we're going to get a cure. <laughs> At least tell you what it is. Not this movie. Yeah. No, you, you never get that resolution. She never gets that resolution. And she also never uh, comes to any greater understanding about herself or her life. She never has a Jerry Maguire moment where she divorces her husband and says, I'm going to fight this on my own. Like she, she goes in the last, uh, there, there are like two parts to this movie. The first part is in suburbia. And the second part is when she goes to a self-help kind of cultish community out in the desert. Um, and in the second part, she, they, they kind of sing happy birthday to her or whatever. Everybody's there with her. They all have the same affliction as her, but she grows more and more isolated in this community which is such an interesting thing. And in the second part, like they, they sing happy birthday, she makes a speech and you can tell she hasn't gained any understanding, any greater clarity. She's just repeating in a, the worst way, all of the things that she's heard uh, in this self-help community without understanding them. Oh, um, and that, is, that devastated me. Uh, yeah. the, 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 the idea that like in her real life, the thing that she had to eventually eschew and, and get away from, all she needed in theory was isolation. Mm -hmm. She then isolates herself and finds like, even though there's a community of people, people who would understand it only dives her further into this isolation. It was her cure, but also her disease. It's like this really fucking sad thing. And she kills it. I mean, that's yeah. the fucking thing. It's just like, I I've always liked her. I've always thought she was an unsung like actress and stuff, but like, Holy shit, this was a different level. Yeah. When, when you see this movie, like, and you put it with all the other performances, it's like, she's, she's one of our best. And I know we say that about a lot of people, but it's, it's easy to forget that about Julianne Moore, right. but like just the range of fucking characters she's played is insane. Like the, the notes that she can hit. And just that, again, that final moment, she's gone from the regular cabins to this porcelain lined igloo at the end. And it's completely sparse. She has no possessions anymore. Uh, she can't have any visitors. Her husband doesn't really seem to care about her. Doesn't want to visit anyway. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't really want to visit. Um, like just that scene when he when she calls him and he's like, "Oh, what's up? Like, why are you calling?" It's like, "Oh, I just want to let you know I got here." Okay. It's yeah. Like, Jesus, the most emotion he has, which I again I think is a, a deliberate choice. The most emotion he really has in the film is like when she doesn't. She's like, "I have a headache." Like she doesn't want to have sex with him or something, and he like right. and freaks he's like, out. Jesus Christ, who has a headache every night of the week? Yeah. When when she visibly gets ill, a more right. muted reaction. <laughs> like, and I I don't know, man. That's that's all by choice. It's a really fucking smart movie that somehow uh, flew under the radar and I'm sure if I go back and think about all the people whose movies I really loved in the 2000s and 2010s and stuff that got their starts in the 90s I bet you there's some more interesting films out there yeah Todd Haynes might be in my top five like American filmmakers um, and like this movie kind of moved it up that far uh, a lot of people he sets it very specifically in 1987 um, and as a queer filmmaker like this was his kind of expression of like the AIDS epidemic and how scary that was to see so many of his friends go through that. But also about, you know, like uh, being a woman in Reagan's America or being a woman in America in general. Like there are a lot of different readings you can take away from this movie, which is why it was so divisive at first. A lot of people wanted some kind of pat conclusion or for them to know how to feel or think about it, which is kind of also, I think, why it stands up so well now is like there's so many different readings you can take away. I think um, that, uh, I mean, that's, I didn't know anything about the filmmaker. I mean, like, I like Todd Haynes. I didn't know he was a queer filmmaker. I didn't know any of that stuff. So when you start to put it through those lenses, like, that's how you know art is really good. On a story yeah. level, on a technical level, it all works. It, it, it has emotional resonance. You feel it in the characters. Given that extra context, you're like, Jesus, that's a 
goddamn miracle <laughs> is what it yeah. is man so uh yeah dude I, I thank you so much seriously it was uh kind of the highlight i mean it's it's hard to say that because the other movie you gave me is orson wells and i really dug it but i'm gonna i'm gonna say that uh, safe was the the better overall film but yeah yeah we'll fair. get into it um let's let's get into your beef man let's let's do this i i, I picked a film for you and you knew this going into it, I think, or maybe you didn't. But I was like, yeah, man, Soderbergh made a movie about Che Guevara. It's got Benicio Del Toro in it. It's great. You got to watch it. And I, and because we had been talking about it, I said, fuck it. I'm just going to put it on your list. I'm going to force you to watch it. You were excited, mm-hmm. I thought, until mm-hmm. you what? You realized it was a two, two-parter? No, I mean, like I was excited with reservations, but it was just like, the, you, you sneaky bastard, you got three movies for the price of two. Uh, <laughs> and look... I I very thoroughly enjoyed Che for the most part. Um, I thought that it was, uh, you know, like a lot of Soderbergh movies, like just handles a very complicated subject in a way that you can clearly understand. Uh, does so at a remove, sometimes a little bit too much. Um, but I understand Che Guevara a lot more than I ever did. He's a figure in, you know, popular and historical uh, fucking culture that i never really understood i did i kind of lost it there um but i don't know man like why did you pick che um what do you like about it che because uh, uh for a bunch of reasons if i can one i think Soderbergh and and uh, this is something you and i share as a sentiment is one of the fucking as much love and uh, claim as he gets i think he gets lost in the sauce from those american auteurs who are just doing shit who can navigate yeah. big budget stuff to doing popcorn stuff to doing like you know, uh, complex ideas like contagion and so on and so forth. Uh, che, by the way, as a story, as a Spanish guy, is very interesting because mm-hmm. it really is an idea of someone who starts off with really good intentions, uh, right. but gets corrupted in the pursuit of things in a way, you know, uh, that's like mm-hmm. the story of it. I mean, like he starts off seeing like extreme inequality. This is all his early life. He was, uh, the motorcycle diaries is also about Che Gravata, if you know that. Um, yeah. That's and actually like, like all I really knew about Che Guevara is like his origin story. So right. I really knew. And, and I would, okay, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because I didn't really feel like the movie did touch on the controversial aspects of Che's life as much. I felt like almost all the way through, he was pretty much the same idealistic guy. Right. Like I didn't come away with any kind of negative association aside from one line that he says at the United Nations, which is basically, uh, yeah, we do executions. We'll continue doing executions as long as it's necessary. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no. I was speaking to like the real life Che Guevara as a, as a narrative, like to me, like growing up as a Spanish oh, guy, you're like, oh, that gotcha, is really, gotcha. really interesting to me. So I was like, oh, someone's going to tackle that. I think, and you already kind of beat me to the punch. If there's a downfall of this film, it's that, I think it's really good. I think they've taken a bunch of really solid interspersed moments and, and, and sure you're telling a narrative. Okay. You have to kind of simplify your, your story, but they don't really go hard on this guy. Um, and, and sometimes that can be perceived as like, well, you're ignoring the casualties because the end result got what you want. Like as fucked up as it sounds, we all like demonize Cuba and stuff, but their literacy program was like one of the greatest ever. They killed people to achieve that. Like at what cost, you know what I mean? So I think that's like one downfall with the film. But aside from that, the fact that an, uh, an American filmmaker 
was able to cross the language barrier uh, mm -hmm. to give one of my favorite actors, Benicio Del Toro, like an actual fucking role. And by the way, I, I've mentioned this to you before, um, Puerto Rican, Spanish, Colombian, Spanish, very fucking different, very right. different. Uh, and he was, he went in there and learned the different dialects and stuff specifically to sound right. Um, and it was critical of himself because he said he got it about 85% right. But still, it's like the idea that so much love and attention went into making an epic in the jungle with an auteur director that was basically ignored when it came out. Yeah, I can only imagine that this was a, a rough shoot. And I saw that it did not make money, lost money, like a lot of money, um, which is unfortunate. And I mean, it's, it's a tough sell, even if you split it into two parts, as I think they did theatrically. because mm -hmm. And it does have like two very kind of complementary but contrasting stories because i know this was edited together as one thing initially right right that was the initial plan and there's a cut of it out there somewhere but it's yeah. split right in the middle it's for everything after cuba right because uh, like because yeah. Uh, yeah this movie charts his kind of rise in cuba and then the second part is his fall in bolivia um which was you know interesting the the fall being not so much his like anything of his doing it was just more so that the government was way more ready for them was my takeaway from this way more ready but what i took away from it was that they thought he was just a credible fucking threat like at some point the u.s yeah. government is like we're throwing resources at stopping this motherfucker because they knew it really is about snipping off that like that spark you know what i mean like right. they, they had taken cuba and if everyone in central america and south america and all these like you know dictators are popping up and shit like that they're like they overthrew batista fuck man like we can all do that and i think the worst nightmare that these people had was a che gravata espousing fucking great socialism and blah 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 blah. you know what i mean was uh was actually going to do right by everybody because they thought he was killing people it is so mired in politics isn't it just the story of che gravata because it's like yeah. anything that isn't capitalism is so antithetical and boogeyman-esque you know Right. But I mean, like he brings up a lot of things about American imperial and, and I was reading the Wikipedia article on the guy and like, he was a fascinating fucking guy, like right. really goddamn smart. And like, just like his motorcycle diary tour. I really want to read that book, by the way. Have you read that book? I haven't, but I'm going to order it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious to read it. Um, Just his tour through South America as like a, a young, hopeful uh, doctor or doctor in training uh, right. and how that kind of radicalized him how he rose up the ranks quickly in fucking uh, the, the Cuban revolution. Mm -hmm. um, just really interesting figure. And Benicio del Toro being probably too old to play a young Che Guevara still fucking sells. Like you forget immediately that he's about 20 years too old, maybe. There wasn't even a however. push to get him a nomination. Like in that, and, and say what you want about the film, I, I really believe that Benicio is like staggering in this fucking movie because yeah, he makes you so. believe it. And especially near the end, like, you know, spoiler alerts, they kill this motherfucker. But yeah, but those last 20 minutes, there's some softness in this revolutionary. Like he's soft, mm -hmm. he's like, he's, he's, he's beaten down, but he's not broken. Like that spirit is yeah. not fucking dead. And I'm like, oh, well, God. just when he's like still a prisoner and he's having that conversation with the, the guard or whatever, mm -hmm. and they sharing a cigarette and talking about his children yeah it's it's really lovely um and just the notes that he plays yeah he he brings a lot of dimension to the role uh for a movie that isn't super interested in telling you everything about che guevara it's che in certain situations you still like just through context just through that performance are able to pick up on so many different things and uh 
Yeah. No, Benicio is fucking wonderful in this. Yeah. Soderbergh, again, went into the fucking jungles and made this movie across a language barrier. And obviously it helps Benicio's bilingual and he can probably translate a lot of shit. But still, mm -hmm. like to have a command of your story and your framing and to have yeah. enough of a, you know, a lot of people say this and it, and it is true to an extent. Like as you watch French TV or Italian TV for long enough and if it's especially dramatic, you, mm -hmm. you don't understand what's going on, but the emotions still translate. You know what I mean? So it's sure. like he had a, a baseline understanding of the knowledge or at least the, the feeling of the, of the language that he was able to, uh, you know, really make. I think that I, there's no part of me that's like, oh, this is an American filmmaker. He didn't get it. You yeah. Know what I mean? Well, it's, like, it's an interesting script. It almost seems like somebody just dropped the camera in the middle of, you know, the fucking 50s and 60s and jungles and just watched yeah. what happened as opposed to like being guided by a story with like a structure and not that it doesn't have a structure. It very much does, but it's not hitting beats that you would expect out of a biopic. You know, it, it feels more like cinema verite than it does. Uh, you know, it's fascinating that Che is a, a public figure considering like he didn't, you know, because he wasn't successful for all intents and purposes. And it's like, the U.S. government was successful. We don't put the U.S. government on T-shirts. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> sorry. I wanted to be silly for a minute. I just I don't get it because he didn't do what he was going to do, and it's not like he was yeah. a martyr. And then like like Martin Luther King, like then you know Obama became president. Everyone's like, see, oh, King didn't see it. But forty years later, we did it. It's 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 not like uh, his great revolution happened. You know? Well, I mean, it, it happened in Cuba, which is a start, and and. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something. So, like, I, I think that at least in his intention, him, you know, sort of taking whatever he had learned and what he had seen and trying to help, you know, the peasants of any given country uh, become literate and to rise up and, you know, sh throw off the shackles that their fucking uh, governments have put on them uh, makes him an inspiring guy in theory, you know? Yeah, he was really shitty about Russia, though, which is uh, one thing I do like. He was just like, a Stalin, he's forgotten all about Marx. <laughs> like, it's one of my favorite quotes by him. <laughs> I don't know why I did it in that voice, but I don't know, dude. He's a complicated figure. He's a fascinating figure. And I think that, that story, if you could do it over maybe eight hours if you wanted to do it properly, you know, sure. like a sweeping epic, considering the resources they had or didn't have, rather, because I don't think that was a huge, huge budget, even though it's right. an epic. Um, well, yeah, go ahead. It, it's interesting. Like, it would have been almost better to have released this thing now as like a mini series on HBO, and it would probably would have been a fucking sensation. Right. But it's just like the way it was distributed um, probably didn't like get a whole lot of interest. People probably weren't like, "Yeah, I want to watch a part one of two and a half hours of Che Guevara in the jungle." Like, where, where do you land? Uh, they they are different films. Are you a part one or part two kind of guy? I think I like part two better. Just th I think it, it's more emotional. It's um, reflective much, too. Yeah. It's re more reflective, more poetic, more uh, a lot bleaker too, um, because it's a man in the back half of his life. And even though that's not written in stone at the start, it feels that way. Like the color palette's all different. The first half is very bright and green. The second half is almost muted and blue. Um, fucking Soderbergh using those color filters again. It's great. He's the man. He's the yeah. man, man. Seriously. Um, I'm glad that I made you watch it, man. I hope uh, overall you you appreciate Soderbergh even more. And yeah, uh, it's a big it's a big ask, but it really is worth it. It's like a ride that I was very happy that I took after I saw it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, so definitely check out Shay on Criterion uh, if you have Criterion, and if not, uh, get Criterion. I don't know what to tell you. Speaking of Criterion. 
The next film, F for Fake, Orson Welles, kind of documentary, kind of video essay, kind of neither of those things, uh, 1973 film. Uh, Christian, what, what's, uh, what do you think of old F for Fake? Uh, yeah, so I, I had no idea what this was at all. Um, I'm not super familiar with a bunch of Orson Welles stuff. We've talked about this. I want to. I want to take a deep dive. I saw Citizen Kane when I was a kid. I think I was too stupid to really appreciate everything that was going on in it. Yeah, I shunned it. Uh, so, you know, F for Fake, you, you recommended you like Orson Welles. And I looked it up, and it's generally considered like minor Wells. But I'm also the guy who loves Stardust Memories and Radio Days. Like, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. the guy who likes off-key uh, films from these auteurs. So um, I went into it and was not sure what to expect. And I still don't really know what I experienced to be completely honest, but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun because Orson Welles, number one, I think I hit you up at like two 30 in the morning and I'm just like, yo, this baritone Orson Welles got the most velvety, sexy voice I've ever heard in my life. And I just want him to read things to me. Um, and then was ranting about Kelsey Grammer, but uh, F for fake starts off and it's just like, uh, Orson Welles hanging out doing magic tricks and narrating and like mentioning French philosophers and shit like that just offhand and I'm just like mm-hmm. okay I guess this is what we're getting ourselves into uh, and then very quickly just becomes this other thing like it's this really light breezy almost unorganized but tied together solely by the presence of this guy who is not the main character of the story right because the it's the whole thing is it's talking about the nature of stories and, a, and the nature of truth in mm. all art forms and it was it's a wild fucking ride considering how he got there yeah it's it's uh some people think of it as like the first video essay the guy uh, tony Zhu joe who uh used to do every frame of painting said that this inspired him to make video essays um a lot of documentarians like don't consider this a minor minor work they consider it like kind of a revolution in how you can edit a story even werner herzog like just when he talks about um ecstatic truth like a lot of his documentaries aren't necessarily aiming for complete factual uh representation on screen it's more just an approximation of the facts all kind of started with this thing and like no other film up until this point had been edited in this way and me watching it now especially now in like the age of sort of uh add editing that you see on youtube or even in film like i feel like this thing was so fucking ahead of its time um so the basic basic premise or setup for it is uh it kind of starts off as an examination of this guy named elmir dahori who's a fucking character a uh an art forger some people called him the second greatest art forger in the world um but as we find out that may or may not be a fabrication too um and then transitions into a story about his biographer, who's also a hoaxer. Uh, what's his name? Um, Clifford Irving. Yeah, Clifford Irving, who who wrote a fake account, wrote and sold a fake account of his uh, time with Howard Hughes that he never spent. Yeah, time I heard with about Howard that Hughes. when I was a kid, and it was like, oh, that real. And then it took me about 10, 15 minutes before I re- like, oh, oh shit, because they mentioned right. Howard Hughes at some point. I'm like, wow. Uh, it really becomes this weird Russian doll situation of of like fake versus truth uh mm-hmm. but even the idea that anyone has the expertise to deem anything truth or fake or i don't know it really becomes this thing that becomes fucking hilarious to watch it's, yeah. it's pulled together by orson welles just being basically a greek chorus like he's the oracle yes. who's just like i'm walking through this story and he's telling shit and like eventually it starts off about elmir i don't know his last name what, what is it dehori 
Elmir Dahori. That's a fun name. Uh, and then Clifford Irving. And then like how Clifford Irving was writing this book about uh, Elmir. And in the middle of that, he was already cooking up this Howard Hughes thing. And like, but, right. but the, they get, start talking about how they would test these so-called experts, uh, the mm-hmm. authenticators. And, and, and eventually people are just in on the corruption, whether they believe it's real or not, they're more than happy to turn a blind eye to it. Museums will accept these fake paintings and shit like that. And it becomes this real, like, God damn it. Yeah. And I've, didn't we talk about this already? Or maybe I talked about this on double toasted where I was like, what if like the great works of art have long been taken you know what i mean like where people steal artwork i talked about this on double toasted because the van gogh got stolen and i was like Mm. wouldn't it be fucking metal of like all the great works like mona lisa that shit was stolen in the 40s all right that's a fake and uh i don't know i thought that was pretty hilarious to set up the story that doesn't even go into the third act which kind of again takes another severe right turn yeah, because I mean, it also gets into Wells himself being uh, getting his start as a hoaxer. Being a faker, he, he did yeah. the yeah a faker. He did the um, War of the Worlds radio broadcast that, at least according to this film, which again, like, there's so many questions in this film of how much of what he's saying is real, which is him right. winking at the camera at the same time as he's telling you what he claims are solid facts. Um, because they they proclaim several times in this movie, like everything that we're telling you is actually true. Is these are the real facts. Um, but yeah, like it gets into him, and then it gets into his companion Oya uh, Kodar, which um, they her time with crush and put into a briefcase in the first fifteen minutes of the film. I think we should we should put that out there. Then they say we're going to get back to her, but they seemingly crush her. Yeah. Um, and like, if this isn't giving you a sense, because this thing is like not a long movie, it's 88 minutes long. And if this is giving you a sense of like, just how compact and kind of schizophrenic and crazy this movie is to watch, at least for me, like it's breathlessly edited, where it's just constantly now over here to Clifford Irving. And then he says something and then and it's like cutting every second. Like, just the idea of how, like, physically cutting this movie, according to Peter Bogdanovich, who knew Wells while he was making this, took him, like, a fucking year just to edit this thing. I, I would say longer, yeah, because you're sitting there with the fucking scissors, and you're snipping, and you got to make yeah. sure it all looks good. And by the way, you can tell at times, I think this is one detriment to it, but it's not a thing that holds it up. I love, I love a lot of films that are recorded without sound and then dubbed over later. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's it, every now and then it won't match up when Orson Welles is saying something fucking gorgeous. This whole yeah. movie is just him. Like you, there's a part in this movie where he's just like, all right, and now a little Kipling, if you will. And like, we stop the movie so he can recite some Rudyard Kipling. And I'm like, right. I'm into it. Uh, he makes it make sense later, but still my point is like, it's just him saying beautiful shit. Occasionally the, the, the mouth doesn't sink up. And you're like, ah, the illusion, but it's such a minor thing. Aside from yeah. that, I actually think it kind of works for the film because the whole film is about artifice and not necessarily being uh, right. congruous, you know? So I ultimately, by the way, this movie uh, ends, he says, for the next hour, I will tell you the complete facts, nothing but the truth, blah, 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 blah. Then we get to this kind of a showstopper where there, there actually is like an amazing acting scene in this movie <laughs> to me anyway, which is... Uh, how, how does it go? Like, uh, what's his face? E- Emir, uh, no, no, El- Picasso. Picasso. You're talking about Picasso, yeah. Yeah, the Picasso yeah, yeah, yeah. story. Do you want to help me here? Just set it up a little bit. I forget. It's oh, like yeah, it's I mean, like it's, Orson Welles' friend's grandfather, right? Yeah. So it's like a play-by-play where this woman who we're introduced to in the first part, uh, and we keep being told throughout the film, like reminded, like Oya Kodar, she's coming in later. <laughs> uh, we finally get to her part, and what we like this as the story goes, it's this story that Orson Welles is telling with her help and in recreation 
that she was walking by uh, where Picasso was staying in this little village day in, day out, day in, day out until he became obsessed with her and wanted her as a muse and started painting her on the condition that she keep the paintings and that she never sell them, she never show them or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Then one day Picasso finds out that, oh, a new Picasso exhibition, it's a, it's a revolution, it's amazing. And he goes there all incensed and angry and sees none of his actual paintings and Oya Kodar is there and she takes him to meet her father who is the world's actual greatest art forger. And it, they, they pull you into this, this story and just with all this gravitas and all this quick editing and slow editing and all that until finally Orson Welles turns to the camera and he's like, now I told you at the beginning that for an hour I would not tell you any lies. Well, that hour has passed. I've been lying my head off. This I week. was conscious that the hour had expired yeah. already. That's the thing because that scene becomes this really amazing thing where they start going back and forth. She's playing Picasso and he's playing the grandfather. And it's amazing because he's like, he, in real time, he's like, Armenian accent aside, like he knows that he's not nailing the accent, but he's like, fuck right. it, I'm gonna get to this, the truth of it. Uh, and it's, it really is like this five minute, you're right, the editing's kinetic, it's going all over the place. But it's anchored by like Orson Welles just being a fucking good actor and bringing yeah. gravitas to something. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, we need to take a well, uh, uh, we need to jump uh, head first into that well, man. You know, the well's and well if we can. Well. Yeah, I just, I'm sitting here being like, this guy might be a fucking genius. Like, and when we, yeah. when we've already talked about that, like, you know, uh, Citizen Kane has a lot of like deep focus kind of shit and it's, it's paying mm -hmm. a lot of love to the silent film era, but there's a reason that it was this revelation when it came out. There's a reason why that guy never compromised and, the things I have seen, I've seen Touch of Evil, really like that one. And it's, sure. he's a good fucking filmmaker, dude. And I think that this is, especially this is later career, when he's only alive for like six, seven this more years. The last thing he released commercially. Oh, he was wow. always working all the fucking time yeah. on different projects as, as the story goes, and then ended up having a fucking heart attack and died um, like while he was working on something. But it yeah, is like, sad that he's not. Thing as protected that he's not cons I mean, I know the film historians generally consider him like this, this national treasure, but like he had an acting Academy, you know, he had all mm -hmm. these things that were supposed to outlive him that have all since shuttered. It makes me sad because I'm just like, yo, he was that guy. He really was. I made a joke right. with you. I forget what the, what the context was. We were making fun of something and I'm like, you know, fucking, Oh, it was just the fact that he's like an, an enigmatic fucking phantom of, of, of <laughs> yesteryear. Like, this guy apparently was reciting entire sonnets of Shakespeare and monologues at six years old. You know what I mean? Like first yeah. broke in fucking Citizen Kane. What was he like 24 or some shit like that? He was, he was 24 when he made Citizen Kane. Yeah. Which like for whatever your feelings about that movie, he changed fucking cinema at age 24. That's what I'm yeah. fucking saying. And then I'm just sitting here just being like, he gave us all of that. And what are we doing? We're just taking cheap shots about his fucking hat and his weight. And his, like, right. and I his don't know. Drunk wine commercials <laughs> like that has ruined his legacy. The poor fucking man. But like okay. uh, this movie made me like him so much more just mm -hmm. as a person because he's just so uh, he's so charming. And it's such a like a light subject and such a goof and so fun. And it's right. like a fucker edited it. He directed it. He stars in it in parts like he was not a lazy filmmaker however you felt about him <sighs> um yeah dude it was le legit as the kids say i i was i'm a fan so nice. you know i don't i don't know what else to say about it i just I think maybe we should move on to my movie now because let's stay in the 70s man is that okay yeah are we are we calling this a movie is that what this is we can it's technically a movie <laughs> 
<laughs> Listen, there's, <laughs> I, I want to point out, like, so people know behind the scene, we, we compiled this list and originally my last film was Stalker by Tarkovsky. And I'm like, yeah, so we watched Stalker. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle, like 2 a.m. again, I'm just like, nah, fuck, I'm taking Stalker out. Billy Jack, which is a fucking movie from the 70s, which we haven't heard of it because it's not very famous. It's a weird movie that is both everything that is right about the 70s and simultaneously everything that is wrong about the 70s. It, for me, is almost when we were talking about Cats the other day being a thing like that could just bring nations together. I still feel that about this movie, uh, technically mm. movie. Uh, and I want to get into it, man. So Billy Jack is uh, written and, and starring and directed by this this cat named Tom Laughlin, who who didn't really do anything outside of it. I mean, he did things, but this is his his high mark as a as a creator. Um, it takes place in the '70s, and it's about a green beret, half Native American man named Billy Jack, who basically becomes the champion of this hippie commune in a town that does not like them. Max. I already kind of know how you're going to approach this, and I'm sorry, but uh, tell me how you feel about Billy Jack, then. Well, as I as I messaged you on Facebook, um, <laughs> and I stand by it because I was in the middle of watching it when I messaged that to you. I said Billy Jack is like a 20 minute movie that they somehow padded out to feature length, and I stand by that. And that first uh, like 18 out of those 20 minutes unfortunately happens in the first 30 minutes of the movie, and then the rest of the movie just kind of comes at you. And uh, happens, and you watch it, and you go, like, your brain just fucking has to deal with it. And then the movie eventually ends. <laughs> That's my feeling It literally it. just ends with, like, a deal. It ends with a deal. <laughs> like, it's the most fucking weird. Yeah. Oh, They're like, hey, can you get the governor on the phone? And, uh, yeah, we can do that totally. That's totally fine. It's like, no, that would not happen. By the way, the okay. tagline to this movie is, when you need him, he's always there. <laughs> okay so billy jack i i'm obsessed with this character i'm obsessed with the performance i'm obsessed with nearly every choice that he makes as an actor in this movie you're mm-hmm. right the problem is that they all the plot is front-loaded like you get this ice cream scene uh, ice cream shop scene which i maintain is maybe one of the best scenes ever made uh or these these hippie kids these people of color go into an ice cream shop and they can't be served unless they're white and some fucking bullies like puts flour on their head and shit like that yeah everything's no problem with that that was actually like well done and then like the fight scene that happens after that i was like okay i've seen this before but it's a genre picture like it's fine i can make apologies for this shit but yeah and then sort no no then it sort of falls apart immediately but the problem like here's the thing i'll defend it in a way that you necessarily won't even when like the story completely stops existing or being aware that that's what you need to do in a movie <laughs> like that's like like this whole movie was made by like a renegade camera who was just like fucking tell me when to press record you know and like just capturing things for no reason um but what i like about it is that like there are choices and there is a sense of composition in some of these shots that are so native to the 70s like there are shots here that like film schools have, have said okay you never you never shoot it like this you never cut off the head you never do this and those are good rules like for the most part follow those rules okay but i also love something being made by someone who really just doesn't give a shit about regard for those rules and being able to like make shots that i haven't seen or wouldn't be deemed socially acceptable so that every time you're watching billy jack it is it's got the 70s grit that's always fun to look at for some reason uh by the way i, think, I feel like you're giving these uh the filmmaker a little too much credit i don't think that this is his refutation of those rules so is so much as him just not understanding that there are rules, sure yeah which yeah, is yeah, almost yeah, yeah, yeah. admirable like th- yeah. there is if there's any 
positive I can say outside of what I've already said is that <laughs> there is a spirit to it that is very do it yourself. It feels like a big group of people got together and everybody got a say. And I want this part to be in the movie. And he's like, sure. I want this part to be in the movie. Sure. Yeah. And it's just like a series of those parts. And that in and of itself is endearing. It's got this very endearing kind of post 60s hippie sort of uh, mentality to it. You know, it's very naive. It's a very, like, naive-seeming movie. Well, it's naive, it and it's sweet. also bullshit. The, the problem yeah. with it, if you want to get shitty with it, is it's a movie about a guy who's like, pacifism, 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 right. but who never adheres to that, who has right. to achieve pacifism and peace through violence. Like, that's the movie's just him kicking people in the throat. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, well, just the scene in the, the inciting incident of the movie in the ice cream shop, he's like, and I am so filled with rage. And I was like, oh, but he's not going to do anything because he's fucking Billy Jack and he's going to be a higher example for these kids and they're going to walk I out of there. And I just go berserk. Yeah, and he just like, <laughs> throws a guy through a window and starts beating the shit out of these other guys and everything. I'm like, all right, well, it's not that, going in that That direction. monologue is, the, there's a part where it's just like, when I think of how long she'll have to carry this idiotic moment of yours. <laughs> like every line delivery in that movie is just like, all right, I'm fucking. And by the way, if you think this doesn't have a story, Billy Jack goes to Washington, which you think would be ripe for more story. Nope. Oh, nope. so you've seen that. <laughs> yes. It's awesome. It's great. I mean, the thing is they're all amazing. They're all amazing for different reasons. I'm not saying it's a good film. It's not a good film. But it is one of those uh -huh. things, like you said, I'm not saying that it's some guy who knew the rules and said, I'm going to purposely subvert them. No, it's a guy who didn't know how to make films. I think that's obvious, but I do like sort of the DIY punk rock aspect of it. And I do like Billy Jack. Like I told the story to you and I want to tell it because there's one extra line that I didn't tell you yesterday, but I'm going to retell it now, which is uh, Bobcat Goldway, who's a fucking filmmaker. Uh, you know him from the high-pitched voice and shit like that. Uh, he, at one point, was just like, every movie I make makes like $4 million, and I'm not, my wife wants to buy a house. I'm, I'm going to finally write within a genre, and he couldn't find out what, what he wanted to write in the genre. And finally, he was like, fuck, I'm just going to remake Billy Jack, man. Because uh, that's like a genre movie, I guess. Uh, so he starts writing the thing, and his wife comes in like a couple days later, and she's like, how's it going? Uh, and he's like, yeah, um, I'm doing good. I'm on page 50. Also, Billy Jack's gay now. <laughs> like, he had swerved into gay Billy Jack. Uh, and then he was, he was, like, writing. He said one scene, and it's a scene from Billy Jack that you saw, which is when he, after the ice cream shop, he talks to the fucking sheriff dude or whatever. Uh, and he's just like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this here foot, and I'm going to punch, and I'm going to kick you right in the jaw. And you want to know something? It's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. And then Bobcat says, like, and I wrote the simplest direction I've ever written in my life. And then he does. <laughs> and then he like fucking kicks him in the face. Uh, and then smash cut to uh, him, him waking up at the bartender's house. So, you know, Billy Jack. And it's, uh, I think if, if, this, if you look at this movie through the prism of gay Billy Jack, mm -hmm. might be a much better film for you, man. I don't know. I'm just trying to get you to like this movie. So if I look at, at it through the prism that doesn't exist. It exists. Except for in Bobcat Goldthwaite's and imagination. In and in my and heart. In, and in your heart. No, I mean, like, uh, Tom Laughlin is actually pretty good for this type of role or whatever. Um, it's just, like, the problem with it is everyone else. Mm -hmm. Like, every other... And it's, like, the, the, the guy who plays, like, the kind of villain piece of shit son of the... Right. Whatever. Like, he, he's fine for that role. He looks like a discount Christian Bale or something. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but no, aside from that, like uh, he he's okay. Like it, it almost plays like a character that would have worked in like a, a half hour uh, TV show. Right. a bounty law you know. yeah 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 like where billy jack is just you know fucking people up or whatever uh but pairing him with like a kind of countercultural, like hippie commune school in the desert where black white it doesn't matter it doesn't matter who you are you can be in this school like it just doesn't work with this taciturn sort of like yeah. you know violent green beret also i just like the idea of glorifying the aspects of counterculture and then decrying the other ones like the only rule no drugs and i'm like i'm not i'm not trying to be an asshole here i'm not saying everyone who's in the counterculture like love drugs but it's a part of it like it seems very weird to just do it i don't know the movie's a fucking mess i just have a special place in my heart for it and uh this is you being very nice because i wanted you to tear it to shreds but i don't think you can that's the thing like it's bad. There's nothing to tear. Yeah, there's like, it's a it's a big like air bubble with nothing in it. It's it's uh, it's a movie I watched, and I I did okay. my best. <laughs> it was the one time you're like, you know, fuck this quarantine. Outside might be better, and I'm sorry for that, sir. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's fine. I got through it, you know. Uh, but Billy Jack um made a lot of money for its time. Hey, Looking man. that up on Wikipedia, which is That's all you could ever hope for. Gross $10 million in its initial run, but then later added close to $50 million in re-release. Whoa, Billy Jack, bro. That's pretty crazy, dude. Ugh. For a budget at 800 k Yeah, man. How did this even cost 800 k <laughs> I guess for the guns. I don't know. It's got a cool hat, too. Maybe spend it on that hat. Right. Yeah, I like yeah. that hat. That's the best I, thing about I this know, movie. I know, I know. Dude, you know, you know that's how I started watching this, right? The hat got me first, and then you I'm like, started I'm started with the hat, much like Tom Laughlin, and also ended with the hat, much like Tom Laughlin. Jesus. All right, man. Well, that, that was this episode of the Quarantine Movie Club. Let me ask you, man, have we already picked our films and I'm just having amnesia? Or what are we doing for next uh, week? No, we have not picked them yet, but we can right now. Yeah, um, pick, pick them. Next episode, I am going to have you watch... Uh, Juzo Itami's Tampopo, which is delightful, and uh, Polytechnique. No, it is. It's, it's delightful. It's a fucking comedy about food, one of the great food movies, Tampopo. Um, and then Polytechnique, uh, which is not as delightful. Um, Denny Villeneuve movie, which I'm not going to even tell you anything about if you don't already know about it. Um, just going to let you discover that on your own. Good. Good. What don't you got for me, me Torres? Um... All right. How about we? Uh, I, I, uh, let's go. Let's do another minor Woody Allen movie. I want to do Radio Days for sure, um, okay. because I'm a real fan of it. I think it's the sweetest film he's done, um, and reflective and pretty. And you know what? Also, I think it takes place in your neck of the woods in, in Brooklyn. It like really. Mm-hmm. I think it's like Gravesend, Coney Island, like the whole area right over there, South Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you'll like it. Seth Green's in it. Plays a young Woody Allen. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's do that, and then why don't we do? Let's keep it a little light, man. Let's do it. Let's do an Italian comedy. Let's do divorce Italian style. They somehow found a way to make divorce uh, a light, heartwarming topic. Well, so uh, that. let's do that, man. Those those are pretty eclectic picks, right? I think we'll uh, polytechnique's in French, right? Uh, it's in uh, English. Oh, is it? Okay, sorry. I, I thought it was one French of the in there. It's French Canadian, so okay. it's like a little bit of both. Okay, if cool, I remember cool. right. All right, man. Well, it sounds good. So uh, until next week, Maxwell. Adios.